gratefully received. Our reading this morning is entitled, Called to Say Yes, by Edwina Gately. We are called to say yes, that the kingdom might break through, to renew and to transform our dark and groping world. We stutter and we stammer to the lone God who calls. We are called to say yes, that honeysuckle may twine and twist its smelling leaves over the graves of nuclear arms. We're called to say yes, that black may sing with white and pledge peace and healing for the hatred of the past. We're called to say yes, so that rich and poor embrace and become equal in their poverty through the silent tears that fall. We're called to say yes to this God who reaches out and asks us to share God's crazy dream of love. So we are called to say yes, but this moment in history says no. It says no to peace, no to equality, no to justice. In fact, I think most of us could convincingly make the case that this moment in history is saying no to each and every one of our Unitarian Universalist principles. No to the inherent worth and dignity to every human person. No to the search for truth. No to respect for the interdependent web of all existence. And pretty much no to all the rest of them, except for the search for spiritual growth within our congregations that we can say yes to without qualification. It came to light this week, some of you may have caught this in all the barrage of news coverage, it came to light this week that the Reverend Patrick Conroy, chaplain of the United States House of Representatives, was fired somewhat quietly two weeks ago by uh, the Speaker of the House, Mr. Paul Ryan. Father Conroy is a Jesuit priest, sometimes known as the radical liberal branch of Catholicism. I will say to you, when I was a kid and people wanted me to behave, they would say, we're going to send you to the Jesuits. <laughs> Take that for what it's worth. <laughs> Mr. Ryan identifies uh, himself as a devout Catholic with conservative leanings. Reverend Conroy was not given uh, a reason for his abrupt dismissal, simply that the speaker wanted his resignation now. Now, I have to say, and I'm kind of proud of him, he's maintained a fairly dignified stance since his abrupt firing although he's been pretty clear that he had no plans to retire. It happened so quietly that people came up to him and said, oh, did you decide to retire? No, he said. <laughs> but he has also said publicly that he does recall a time when Speaker Ryan approached him after he had led a particular prayer and had something to say about that prayer. 
The prayer occurred in November at the beginning of the debate over the tax bill, which has since passed and become law. And this is at least in part the prayer to the House of Representatives. May all members be mindful that the institutions and structures of our great nation guarantee the opportunities that have allowed some to achieve great success while others continue to struggle. May their efforts these days guarantee that there are not winners and losers under new tax laws, but benefits balanced and shared by all Americans. Padre, said Mr. Ryan after the day's debate. Now that right there, like, irritates me because it's not like it's Reverend Lopez or Reverend Alva, it's Reverend Conroy for Conroy for crying out loud. But anyway, Padre, Mr. Ryan called him, you just got to stay out of politics. Let's sit with that for a minute. It's the House of Representatives. <laughs> this is, by the way, the first time in our nation's history that a congressional chaplain has been fired, just in case you were wondering if there was high turnover. <laughs> I'm sorry, this just drives me crazy. I do though, in all seriousness, I wanna take a moment to unpack this with all of you because I think it has, I believe it has relevance to us. It has relevance to us sitting here this morning taking our place in this religious community. Allow me to repeat the last line of the prayer. May their efforts these days guarantee that there are not winners and losers under new tax laws, but benefits balanced and shared by all Americans. Is this a political prayer? I'm asking. Is it? It's a trick question, but I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Is it an unacceptable strain into the mixing of politics with religion when the chaplain of a U.S. House of Representatives invites his flock to think of all the people they represent as they debate? legislation. No. No. So why fire him? How and why does this prayer, might this prayer, make Cops leadership uncomfortable? If the authors of the tax legislation believe that in fact it is fair and balanced and spreads its benefits across all of the people in the land. What's the problem? Maybe there's a hint in the prayer that all of us would do well to remember that not everyone carries the same level of privilege and access to power. So there are, as of last count, 
officially 145 million people in the United States who fall below the poverty line, which is $22,541 per year for a family of four. Unofficially, the tallies, and for this I go to the folks from the Poor People's Campaign for my data, unofficially there are at the very least 100 million more. It's a lot of people, a lot of families, it's a lot of children. If the chain of events is, as we have been told, the chaplain of the United States House of Representatives lost its job over bringing 245 million people into the conversation. Republican Congressman Walter Jones of North Carolina says this is about religion in America. Indeed, it is. I think it's about religion anywhere. Might that prayer not have been made by Rabbi Jesus of Nazareth, who talked about poor being blessed? Might it not have been made by the Prophet Muhammad, may the blessing of Allah and peace be upon him? The Prophet who taught that almsgiving and compassion is one of the five daily pillars of Islam. Might it have been shared by the Buddha and his followers who were sworn to poverty as they traveled the roads of 5th century India? This is standard religious fare, isn't it? It's almost a cliché. What I want to point out this morning as we finish unpacking this is that it may be a cliche, it may be that we take it for granted, but the fact of the matter is, in this moment, and frankly maybe in every moment, our religious values pose a threat to the status quo. They do. And we have to come to grips with that. Our religious values, at their best, hold a mirror up to us and ask us to evaluate how we are living our lives and what we are choosing to put our energy toward, to put our love toward, to put our hearts toward. And I don't know about you, but I know that for me it's not always very comfortable to look in that mirror. We do fall short, don't we? We do fall short. May their efforts these days guarantee that there are not winners and losers under new tax laws, but benefits balanced and shared. This is a revolutionary statement. Think about it. This is the call of beloved community. And beloved community is a threat to the powers that be, or as my Christian siblings often say, a threat to the powers and principalities. I love that phrase. 
simple human decency. We view this a threat to the status quo. When and how did we learn or come to believe that talking about fairness, justice, and compassion were unacceptable or somehow, somehow a, a kind of treacherous mixing of political viewpoints and religion. How, that religion had to be separate from this thing that we call trying to live our best lives. I'm not talking about partisan politics. I mean, it would be one thing if the man had stood up and waved his arms and said, all right, people, time to impeach this guy. He's a lunatic. Yeah, I didn't say that. <laughs> if he had said that, yeah, I think he would have been crossing the line as the chaplain to all of the congressional representatives. If he had stood up and said, brothers and sisters, we know that God is a registered Republican. <laughs> so I say unto you today, may all of you who are Democrats lose in the midterm. <laughs> I would have crossed the line. I didn't say that either. But he didn't. He didn't say that, and I wouldn't say that. I mean, I say it jokingly here this morning because I can't help myself. <laughs> but speaking truth to power is a big responsibility, and speaking truth to power is something we can't afford not to do. We cannot afford not to do it. Not now. Do you know the phrase, have you heard the phrase, speaking truth to power? I'm such a history nerd. I found out that it came actually from a pamphlet written by the Quakers in the mid-1950s. And it's a pamphlet about pacifism. And the pamphlet says, love can overcome hatred. They really were Unitarian Universalists. And if we learn that it's not okay to challenge from the place of values and truth as best we know it, to challenge policies that go against our values, why did we learn that? Did we learn that because we don't like to fight at the Thanksgiving table? I'm not going to, you know, make it a commandment to argue with your relatives over Thanksgiving. Where did we learn that? Did we learn that because we feel uncomfortable with conflict? Because we're worried about what might happen to us? If we sort of step out on that bridge? This is the final Sunday of our, of our fellowship's church year. Been a good, good year together. It's gone by fast. At least for me, maybe not for you. And as I stand here before you today, your board is evaluating my new contract as your settled minister. Tell 
celebration, we will speak covenantal vows to one another. But I want to talk with you about a clause that is in my contract and a clause that was actually in the contract you all signed when you hired me to be your contract minister. It's a clause that promises me a free pulpit. And not only promises it to me, which means you all are promising it to me, but it tells me that you expect, that's the word, expect me to express my views, my values, and my commitments without fear or favor. Whether I'm scared to do that or not. Whether I think you're going to love me for it or get mad at me. expect me to. We should have that in the House of Representatives, shouldn't we? In fact, my beloved, this is a rare thing. A free pulpit is a rare thing. The Baptists have it, some Congregationalists have it, but for the most part, it doesn't exist. And this has been part of our tradition for as long as any of us can, can, can remember. That's not a gift to be wielded without responsibility. Theodore Parker, some of you may have heard of him. He's one of our first great preachers and, and thinkers in Unitarian, well, he was Unitarian. In the early 19th century, there, the two were not together. Parker was an abolitionist, and in fact, he, uh, he famously would write his sermons with a pistol next to uh, his hand on his desk. Don't try this at home. <laughs> because he routinely harbored those who were fleeing slavery, and he was prepared to defend their lives at any cost. Have you ever heard the phrase, the arc of the universe bends towards justice? Which Dr. King used repeatedly. That phrase comes from Theodore Parker. And he made a sermon in, I believe it was 1841, where he talked about the free pulpit, and I want to quote a few words from them. It's actually, it's a, it's an, it's a great sermon, and all of us should read it. Um, but he was, doing, he was uh, speaking at the ordination of a new minister, and he was speaking to the congregation that was going to be led by this new minister, and he said, truth speaks in a thousand tongues and with a pen engraves her sentence on the rock forever. It's the 19th century, a little more flowery than we do today. You may prevent the freedom of speech in this pulpit if you will. You may hire your servants to preach as you bid, to spare your vices and flatter your follies, to prophesy smooth things and say it is peace when there is no peace. 
yet in so doing, you weaken and enthrall yourselves. But on the other hand, you may encourage your brother or your sister to tell you the truth. You will then have her best words, her brightest thoughts, and her most hearty prayers. Beloved community, dear ones, depends on truth-telling. Beloved community where poverty, hunger, and homelessness are not tolerated because they go against human decency. Beloved community where racism, bigotry, and prejudice will be replaced by an all-inclusive love. This is where we get to practice, beloved community. This is where we get to work it out. This is where we get to learn to model it so that when we go out to our various endeavors, we can embody beloved community wherever we go. How will we practice? I want you to think about our year ahead together. I want you to think about what the glue will be that binds us together in this coming That guides our feet, as the old spiritual said. <coughs> because as much as we love this community, it's not simply enough to make sure we survive another year as an institution. Survival is good, but it's not enough. I want us to ask ourselves, why does it matter for us to survive? Why does it matter? In this coming year, I'm going to invite you to create a covenant with one another, a covenant of right relations. And maybe we'll read that covenant during every worship service so we can remind one another of who we mean to be together. What are the values that we hold and that will hold us? I'm going to invite you to dive deeply with me into the work of anti-oppression, anti-racism, and multicultural community. I'm going to invite you, all of us, to struggle together to recognize that there is a vision for this community and a call to say yes in a world 